Hello and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I am your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this poetic little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I'll be speaking with Leslie McBain. Now, if you know Leslie like I know Leslie, then you're going to know her as that woman that's been hosting the Speakeasy as a monthly event at the Legion where people read their original works of art. Well, we are going to get to hear Leslie talk about that in a very poetic way, along with many other things. We're going to get to hear Leslie talk about her experience growing up in Edmonton, being a young hippie, and then moving to California for 26 years. We're going to get to hear Leslie talk about a skate park that she helped develop on the island that was at the community hall. As well, too, we're going to get to hear Leslie talk about the loss of her son, Jordan, and her subsequent involvement in co-founding Moms Stop the Harm, a group that's aiming to raise awareness about addiction and also, more importantly, help to change drug policies within the government. That and a heck of a lot more in this interview, and I just want to thank Leslie very much for her candor and openness during this interview, and you know, I ask people during each interview who's helped you along the way on Pender Island, and one of the people who's helped me along the way is Leslie. Leslie's been a real bright light in my life, and I really love having her around and love interacting with her. And uh, it was a real pleasure to get to do an interview with her, and it's a pleasure to call her a friend. So I hope you will get to enjoy Leslie's company while listening to this interview as much as I enjoy her company. So without further ado, here is my interview with Leslie McBain. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's nice to be back in this room in your basement. Yeah. <laughs> back in this room. I know. We just talked about this. I took a reflexology practicum years ago, and you were one of my practicum clients. It was so nice. Yes. Was it Was it so nice? It was, was. It was lovely. Okay. Yeah. All I right. think it was free, too. So I think that was really a very attractive feature of it. Yeah, anytime people are massaging your feet for free. It's a good thing. It's a good thing, definitely, for sure. Anyways, uh, yeah. Well, let's get to the first traditional question, and that is, what brought you to Pender Island? Well, what brought me here originally is that my sister, Diane McBain, has a farm here and has had a farm here since the, I believe, the 70s on South Pender. So my ex-partner, Carl, and I were living in Oakland, California for many, many years. I was born and raised in Edmonton, so I am Canadian. I just want to make that clear. Um, And we were coming up to visit Diane for, I don't know, many summers for a couple of weeks. And uh, we were living in Oakland, California. We had a business there. It was a plumbing contracting business. At its largest, there was 40 employees It was something that was overwhelming for us. We weren't really happy in that business. We worked way too hard. It wasn't that rewarding. So one summer, I think it was in the summer of 89, we came up, visited Diane, and had a beautiful two weeks here on Pender in the summer in August. And as we were leaving, actually, we were driving back down to California. We crossed the border and I, I kind of had a emotional moment and I, Carl was driving and I was in the passenger seat and car and Jordan was in the back in his little baby seat. And uh, I just started crying and it wasn't, it was just sort of this overwhelm. And so we pulled over and Carl asked me what the, what was happening. And I said, in a, in a moment of brilliant clarity, I just said, I want to live on Pender Island. And he said, so do I. So it was a big moment because we were returning to Oakland to this big business with all kinds of contracts back to a life that really had become not, not that fun at all. So about 
two weeks later, we actually made an arrangement with one of the people that was on the island here who was a real estate agent at that time. We phoned her and said, here's how much money we have. We want the impossible. We want waterfront, acres, you know, etc. And so line it up and we'll come back. And so really only a few weeks after that did we fly back here. She took us to five properties. The first one was the one we that I now live on that we've had now for since 89, 10 acres on the water. Uh, it had water access only. That's why it was cheap. Uh, but we did eventually get a road. And um, yeah, I've never regretted it for a moment. It took us five years actually to get back to Pender because we had to sell our, we had to finish all our contracts, sell our business. And that took basically took five years. So we got here in 1995. Okay. Well, there's so much to unpack there. I want to know more about what this business was like that you were running in Oakland, specifically, what were you and your husband doing? Well, it was a plumbing contracting business. And uh, Carl had learned plumbing while he was going to university. uh, So as his sort of summer job. So when we We had gone to Europe for 18 months. We lived in a Volkswagen van for 18 months after we finished university. And we came back thinking, okay, we better do something grown up now. (laughs) So we started Pacific Plumbing Systems in Oakland, California. And we started, as most businesses do, with one employee. And by the time all was said and done, we we had about uh, something like 38 plumbers and a couple of office staff and myself. Carl's parents came to work as well. It was contracting and service. So we had big contracts for new construction, mostly commercial and some service work. It was big. It was uh, many times I would think to myself, I never thought I would grow up to be a owner of a plumbing <laughs> plumbing (laughs) business. What am I doing here? So yeah, it was, it was very easy to leave. Yeah. But you said it took five years to actually. It took five years. Yeah. It was kind of a brutal five years, but it was, we did it. And we were always ones to take risks thinking we'd land on our feet and always did. So. Okay. And so you, you hit the Island in 95 and I'm sure you've set up a bit of a network through your sister and visiting prior to that or not really. Not really. I remember meeting a woman who's amazing and I admire so much and who's still my friend, Jan Kirkby, at a fall fair back then, back in the day, somewhere in there, 95, or maybe even before we moved there. And she and I clicked and really liked each other right away. And I thought to myself, well, if I have one friend and it's Jan Kirkby, you know, besides my sister, I'll be fine. So, you know, that she was on my mind for a, a long time and um, and we're, we're still friends. We've been friends all through. Yeah. Okay. So you moved to the <laughs> island. You've got uh, one solid friend, Shannon Kirkby. You've got uh, your sister. And so how were the first few years living on Pender? Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's like stopping banging your head against the wall to move out of a city to move to Pender. I mean... For me, I always had in my mind that I want to live rurally in a rural area and be, you know, in the woods. And part of me said, oh, that's just a romantic notion. You know, everybody wants to live in the woods. Nobody wants to live in the city. Yeah, sure. But actually, the fact is, I I could not leave Pender if you paid me to do it. I'm so happy. I was happy from the first day I arrived and continue to be happy to live here. I would never want to live anywhere else. So the transition, I was probably kind of lonesome at first. Oh, yeah. Okay. I remember Jackie Maine, who's another institution of Pender Island, who I adore, invited us to a party at her house. And she used to have these awesome bonfire parties. And, you know, you couldn't even tell how many people were there because it was dark and in the woods. And, you know, there was a bonfire and people are singing and smoking pot and just having a general good time. So I thought, oh boy, I've arrived. I've gotten been invited to Jackie Maine's party. And so we went and sure enough, it was very welcoming and fun experience. And I think that's when I stopped worrying about, oh my gosh, how will I ever make friends or how will I ever fit in here? Um, so I think that was a turning point socially. At the same time, Jordan was starting grade one, um, the 
fall after we moved there in June, to Pender in June. <clears throat> so he was starting school. And so I got really involved in the school for a long time. I was pack chair for more years than I wish to admit to. I'm sure others were getting tired of me being, but no one else wanted to do it. So I always got elected <laughs> every year. But So I was pack chair for a long time and was really involved in yeah, in the school. And so PAC stands for Parent oh, Advisory Committee? That's it. Par- Parent Advisory Council. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. No, one, no one else wanted the job? <laughs> no, it's it's a jo- it's a hard job because parents, lot you know, parents have different ideas about how things should look and work and issues that they have. And so, you know, it's kind of like herding cats sometimes, but we really had a good group of parents. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard, but it's not an easy job either. So people weren't jumping up and down to For sure. take the position. It's volunteer as well too, right? It's volunteer, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, sometimes people are not jumping up and down for volunteer positions. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. Okay. Well, I just want to uh, back this up a little bit sure. here because and I have to give credit as well to, I've mentioned this to you, but I'll just mention to the audience that part of the reason that I came up with this podcast is because of a conversation that I had with you a few years ago. There was a few people I've talked to along the way that triggered this idea to come up with this podcast, and you were one of them. And it was in a car ride that we took together where you saw me on the ferry and you asked where I was going. I said I was going to downtown Vancouver. You said, Can I give you a ride? And we have shared so many conversations prior to this, but it was in that car ride where you told me quite a few details about your life before moving to Pender. And I thought, wow, I didn't know this about Leslie. <laughs> so let's let's try to go there and uh, see what happens here. But how did you wind up moving to California originally? Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So backing it up to the early 70s, late 60s, actually, the late 60s. I was a hippie. I was a hippie wannabe. I wasn't too sure because I lived in Edmonton, you know, it was, uh, what are hippies really? Well, I, I kind of wanted to be a hippie, but I wasn't sure how to go about it. So make a long story short, let's see. I, I moved to Banff. I was also a skier. So moved to Banff, lived in Banff, met some crazy, crazy ass skiers and uh, got into smoking pot. So I could tell you one story about that, that I, I love telling just because it's just so strange to hear it now. We were living in Banff. We were living up at Lake Louise. And um, as anyone who skis knows and goes up there knows, there's a, a place called the Post Hotel. Back in the day, the Post Hotel was just a little log building with a restaurant and a few rooms. Uh, but that's where the Greyhound bus came in. And it would uh, bring packages and it would bring whatever people and people leave and go to Edmonton or wherever. So we all decided, my friends and I decided to chip in and buy a pound of marijuana which was, I think at that time, somewhere in the neighborhood of $70 what? or $75. Wait, where can you buy this? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you have to go back in time. So we we sent off our money to someone. I, I, I wasn't the person who did this, so I'm not, I can't remember where we even found this person. To Vancouver. We sent our money to Vancouver and we waited. And it was, it was almost like a movie. After about two weeks, we would all go down to the post hotel at seven o'clock when the seven o'clock Greyhound came in to see if our package was there. And days and days and days went by and maybe weeks, no package, no package. And then one day, the package arrived and it was like this giant celebration. So we all rushed over to somebody's trailer where we lived. A lot of us lived in trailers on down there at, in Lake Louise. Tore open the package and sure enough, there was a pound of pot. So we just started smoking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we spent that winter, you know, skiing and then in the evening smoking pot. Maybe we smoked pot in the day too. I don't remember. But <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun. Yeah. So so that's one story from then. And then I had lots of friends there, some really great folks. And one one of the people was a guy named Bruce, and he was from California. And he was he became the boyfriend of my friend Mary. So the ski season ended. And we decided to go to California. We'd saved up some money. There's a story there, but I'll save that for another time. We saved up some money and we took a month and really quite a nice little big bag of pot with us. <laughs> Crossing borders, oh, who cares? You know, we, <laughs> we just had no fear in those days. And we went, uh, we took a month to travel down to, Calif- to San Diego, 
where Bruce had friends. So we ended up having surfing when we were by the beach, going through Death Valley. <laughs> Sounds like I was a big doper, but, you know, giving people pot, you know, peace and love. And it was so fun. We ended up in Santa Barbara and I stayed there for 10 years. That's where I started my life in California. I met some people who were trying to sell a little restaurant in the campus town of Isla Vista. And I asked my dad for some money because I want to buy into a business. I think I was 19 or 20. He thought I was crazy, but he very generously lent me, I think it was about $1,500. So I bought into little restaurant called The Wooden Horse. And with that, I was able to get my green card to stay. So I stayed, I actually stayed there for 26 years in California. Yeah. And so what kind of a restaurant was this exactly? It was, it was on the college campus or just off the campus. And it was just really basic. It was a coffee house kind of, and I had, we had a little pizza oven and we had uh, sandwiches, different kinds of soups and sandwiches. And one of my partners was quite a bit older than I so he, I wouldn't have done this at this time, at that time, but, you know, he played a lot of jazz and uh, had chess boards set up and that worked. And, you know, it worked for a while. And then I, I was just too young to have that kind of commitment. So I sold my portion of it out to him and just went, went off and did odd jobs, basically. Okay. And so moving from Edmonton to California, was it the the weather, the people, a mix of everything that made you choose to stay there? In California? Yeah. Um, it was a lifestyle, certainly. And, and that's where, I mean, that's where the hippie culture was. And that was definitely where I wanted to be. I wasn't interested at that time in going to university, which is, you know, what my parents always had planned for me. So it was just the freedom and, you know, it was all about music and freedom and friends and doing some, as little work as possible and still be able to go down to the nude beach. We went to the nude beaches or, you know, just concerts. Like I say, just had a good time. Yeah, because not everybody moves away from home. A lot of people do, but not everybody moves away from home that far away at that young of an age. But did you miss home? Did you miss family? Or you just thought this is this is it? This is absolutely oh god, where I need to yeah. Be? I miss my family so much. I, I used to go home regularly. I mean, I would scrape together enough for a plane ticket here and there. Or if, actually, truth be told, I think my parents generally footed the bill for me to come back and forth. Uh, I miss my family a lot. Yeah. But okay. I, I've always, you know, I always went, went home. And you got to reconnect with them. Well, you know, I think that your dad, from what you've told me, has a very uh, interesting past. I, I know that he recently passed away. But he did. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your father's first name? Ross. Ross. Ross McBain. Ross McBain. Maybe if you want to let the uh, audience know a little bit about uh, your mom and dad. What was your mom's name? Dorothy. Dorothy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your parents. Sure. Let's see. So my dad was... See, it's hard to know where to start. Okay, so uh, I met him when I was born. <laughs> so I really knew him all my life. Um, he um, he was a photographer when he was a young fellow. He then went into the Royal Air Force during the war. Uh, he was a pilot on aircraft that went onto aircraft carrier, that kind of thing. And he was always very funny had a high, high quality sarcasm. Like my dad had, was the best sarcastic person ever. I mean, I grew up on sarcasm. So I think he was that way. I just guess how he was when he was a young man. Anyway, after the war, he came back to Edmonton where he'd been born and raised and he started a business, McBain Camera. I think he started that business in 1948 or 49. He met and married my mother I was born a short time later, dramatic pause, (laughs) and um, he uh, went on to build a business of about, I think, by the end of his career, which is when he died, because he went into the office every day, almost till he died, had about 13, 14 branches of McBain camera. So he was a big-time businessman in Edmonton. He joined everything. He was president of the Chamber of Commerce and president of the Better Business Bureau. And, you know, that was his, he was sort of like, you know, on Mad Men, that TV show. I envisioned him like that. He was out and about. My mom was 
very, very beautiful. She was a fashion model for a while. And um, I think that's why they got together in the first place. They were both quite <laughs> attractive people. And um, she worked at a radio station in Edmonton. That's how dad met her. And uh, they got married in 1947 and went on to have five lovely children, I being the eldest. And uh, my mom was a mom. And she was a community person who, you know, volunteered in the community. I can remember she was a teacher at Pedal Pushers. Do you ever remember? No, pedal what's Pedal Pushers? Pedal Pushers is for t to teach children how to be safe on their bikes. Okay. And it was an actual sort of, I don't know if it was national or, or just in Edmonton, but um, it was an actual function, an organization, Pedal Pushers. She played the accordion for a while. She was a good mom. She was always seemed cheerful and happy. And unfortunately, she had a heart condition and she died at age 66, which was way too young. Okay. Dorothy. Dorothy and Ross. Mm -hmm. Dorothy right. and Ross. Thanks for sharing. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's jump forward to being on Pender. And actually, something that I wanted to make sure we absolutely touched on is uh, the speakeasy. Oh, yeah. Which is where we met. That's right. I'm, I'm sure. I think that's where we met. Yeah. I would be. think so. Yeah, that makes sense. But the Speakeasy is a monthly event that takes place on Pender Island that you've been hosting it for as long as I've been going. And I've been going since 2010 because we were trying to figure out when it was you started hosting. Right. It might have even been before that, now that I think of it. But I can't exactly remember, but Marianne Perry might remember because she's the historian of the Speakeasy. But for a long time. But the Speakeasy started uh, with Pamela Brooks, who passed away um, some years ago. Uh, she was a excellent poet. And uh, we started, as I recall, at least in my, you know, since I moved to Pender at the library. And that was before the new edition on the library. So there was a sort of funky little library room off the main part of the library. And every month, Pamela and some of us helpers <clears throat> would go in and drape the place with velvet draperies and, and Indian print draperies. And she had a place where we borrowed, oh, I was trying to remember the lady's name who we borrowed, all the card tables. So we'd bring in card tables and folding chairs and tablecloths, and we had candles. I mean, probably wouldn't be able to do that now, but candles on every table, and lots of people came. It was, I believe, free by donation. I can't remember. People would bring baked goods and tea and we started having the speakeasy, which, you know, it was a place where people could read their original work, five-minute limit, be some beautiful work. In addition, Pamela started producing, for several years, produced a book called, I think it was called Poetry on Pender. And she would take what she sort of juried it and what she thought was the best poetry of the that year and published into a little spiral-bound booklet. Well, really, I've never yeah. heard of that before. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Pender you, Anthology, actually, I think it was called. Yeah. Do you have any of those? Or? I do. I okay. do. I have some at home. I think I have them all. Wow. Mm. Wow, neat. And so back in the day when the Speakeasy was at the library, mm. was it any different than what it is today, would you say? Or is it pretty much the same thing in terms it of the was, content? That's a good question. I think it was pretty much the same. Of course, there was different people. The ambiance was a little different because Pamela was was the hostess host. And um, yeah, some people are gone and some people are still here, still going. So it was essentially the same though. Yeah. For sure. Well, you know, yeah. it's weird. I don't go for a few months. I'll come back to it and realize, oh, wow, there's some new people coming. And it seems as if there's always something kind of fresh happening that it always does seem to be evolving a little bit. It does. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But you've been hosting it for close to a decade now, if not yeah. more, right? Right. But anyway, and and uh, I got to say a huge thank you because for me personally, that was such a huge boost of confidence to have something like that available, like just to live in a small community and have that. I remember the first few times going, I was so nervous to read anything, but it really gave me a lot of, I guess, you know, just confidence to move forward and to try new things. But, uh, and I, I think a lot of people probably feel that way. I think that there's so many nerves during those evenings before people read and then just such a deep sense of satisfaction from having their original work heard by an audience. Mm -hmm. And in a safe place. I think that's, that's really the critical thing about Speakeasy. It's such a safe place. 
And I have to say, I would have never guessed that you were nervous ever because your work was always so good and so funny and so dramatic and so well done that I, I'm surprised to hear you say you had, you were nervous, but you always uh, brought something new to speakeasy and still do when you show up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm busy now. I got this show thing up. to do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you always read some amazing poetry at, uh, of your own, obviously, because yeah. it's original work. And when did you start writing poetry, Leslie? You know, I think it was probably in high school, sort of that uh, adolescent angst kind of starts leaking out or something. And, um, I realized I always loved writing since I was a little girl, writing stories or writing a journal or something like that. So it's hard to say exactly, but I think when I really, uh, I was probably in my late 20s or early 30s when I started realizing how much it meant to me and and the satisfaction I got from it. I took a couple of courses at UC Berkeley, which was the most humbling, frightening experience of <laughs> my educational life. I was a rookie. I really didn't know very much. And, and the people in the class classes that I took, they had read a lot more poetry than I had for one thing. And so they had a lot of experience, but it was a good boost. It was a good way to boost my work. And so I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And then I took some poetry uh, workshops here are in Victoria. And I have a, a mentor who I dearly love, George Bowering, who is a well-known Canadian poet, and he uh, he's won Governor General's awards and for his both prose and poetry. Who was a great mentor and still a great friend. So that was another, you know, sort of inspiration for continuing to write. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people take up writing and poetry at a younger age and let it go and don't pursue it or don't follow it. But what's really kept you driven to continue to write poetry to uh, to this point in your life? What do you think is it that drives you about it? Well, one of the things is that people seem to like it. And, you know, when you get to read it in public <laughs> and, and people give you kudos, you know, and say, oh, I love that or I love this, you think, oh, well maybe I'm good at this. Maybe I can do this. I, you know, I mean, I am humbled by so much poetry out there. I mean, I read, I have a lot of poetry at home and I try to always have a book nearby to just even open at a place. Um, so I know where my skill is on that spectrum. I have no illusions, but just, yeah, I think having people appreciate it is big. I mean, it comes out whether it's good or not. I mean, Every poet will tell you that they probably write 100 bad ones for one good one or 50 bad ones. I don't know what the count would be, but you have to write a lot of crap before you get one that speaks the truth, I guess. So when you're writing the poetry, are you forcing the process along sometimes to get it in for the deadline of doing the speakeasy or is it when the motivation hits or when <laughs> are you normally writing your poetry? That's a good one because I'm so busy these days that it is actually the the deadline of speakeasy that makes me sit down and we we generally, you know, we pull the words, random words from a box and use those for our inspiration. People can use them or not use them, whatever they like, but that does inspire me to just switch into a different mode and start to write poetry. And and I, you know, when I actually get there, I love it. And it reminds me that that's part of what my joy is, is to write that, to write poetry. Yeah. It's taken a sort of backseat to a lot of the work that I do now, but it's always there. Yeah. And for anybody listening who has never been to a speakeasy before, I cannot recommend it enough because it is a really beautiful thing to witness people on the island. Some people you know, some people you don't, expressing themselves through their own written words. And it's a really intimate and like Leslie just described, a really safe place. And I always feel really uplifted when I'm driving home. Mm -hmm. Every time I feel this sense of upliftedness. And uh, it's really a special, beautiful thing to uh, to witness people expressing their creativity. It is. And people take risks. Uh, and that's what I love. I, I love when somebody who, like you say, has never written or never read their work in front of an audience or never even considered writing poetry, but yet they'll come to speak easy and think, oh, well, if they could do it, I could do it too. And and so we get these folks who who are just putting their heart out there, you know, taking a risk and 
and loving it. You know, I, I just, I feel the same as you. Every time I drive away from the Legion, I think, wow, that was so amazing. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Because it can be one sentence sometimes that just really moves you from a piece of work or the entire thing or anything in between. But uh, yeah, usually when my wife and I are driving home, we're just reflecting on the experience the whole way back. It's it's really good. Yeah. Thanks for hosting it for oh, so long. Oh, you're so welcome. It's yeah. my pleasure, literally. <laughs> You mentioned the skate park with the community hall. Would you like to talk about that? I would. Yeah. Okay, perfect. One of the things I, because it was, it was another really fun thing. I think when Jordan and his friends were probably about grade five or grade five, six, they all started skateboarding. They all had skateboards. Um, they were doing crazy things on the hills on Pender. They were, we were going to town. I was taking a bunch of them to town on the weekends to go to the skate park in Esquimalt and, or in Sydney. And so it was a big deal. So we decided that we needed to build a skate park on Pender Island. And perhaps I decided that, Jordan and I decided that. So we, we looked around for some property that we could actually build a skate park. And then we were going to raise funds or we're going to get grants. We had some plans, right? And we couldn't quite get the approval that we needed for this one piece of land that was up by the um, water treatment plant. It would have been perfect, but we couldn't get the okay. There was too much red tape. So I forget exactly what else we did around trying to find a place. But uh, we decided to build a skate park, a movable skate park at the hall. So we got some dads together, builder dads. I think Brent Marsden and Kevin Marsden and Pete Fennell um, and Carl uh, Miller and I'm sure a few others. And we, oh, and David McKenzie. We bought some designs online of ramps and different jumps and, you know, all the gear. I guess we fundraised. We did. That's it. We fundraised. God, it's coming back to me now. Anyway, we got enough money to buy materials. And so we made this skate park. All these um, ramps and all the gear was on wheels with little brakes on them. So we had to, um, every time we had skate park, which was twice a week uh, for quite a long time, we had to roll these things from outside the back of the hall where we'd cover them with tarps and everything roll them into the downstairs of the hall, set the brakes, set them up. Kids would play, skateboard, hoop and holler. And actually we had a girl's day because the girls didn't like that the boys were too pushy. So Friday was a girl's day and the girls came, Nadia Novak and Carly Baxendale and Laura Biagioni and lots of others um, came and skated on Fridays. They could come any of any time, but they had it to themselves on Fridays. And yeah, so that worked until I think we just got tired. Everybody got tired. And, you know, it's hard sometimes to get enough volunteers to keep something going. Um, and then, you know, it the rains kind of got somehow got into under the tarps and things started to fall apart. However, we were also very proud of having our Pender Skate Park at least for a year or so. So it was inside the community hall downstairs. Exactly. And was it a half pipe or was it Yeah, something... we had a half pipe and we had a rail and we had some jumps. I don't know. I, I Smaller pipes. Yeah. But pretty much filled up the base, you know, the downstairs of the hall. That's pretty cool. You know, when you told me that uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we talked on the phone before doing the interview, I, I thought, what? There's a skate park on Pender Island before. That's totally, that's neat. Was that the early 2000s? Yeah, that's about right. 2004, maybe. And there was enough kids on Pender interested in skateboarding. Too. Oh, yeah. It seemed like there was hordes, but I mean, it's Pender, so it probably wasn't hordes, but a lot of kids would show up. Even I remember Nia Williams brought Noel when he was about I don't know, maybe he was about four. I mean, he was some little kids there and the big kids, including Jordan. Jordan loved kids and he, he would help the little kids learn to stand on their board and move around. So yeah, it was, it was big fun. Right on. That's neat. And it's nice uh, nice to hear the fact that a bunch of the uh, the carpenter dads built this. and They did. They were great. Yeah. Volunteering their time and getting it done. Sweet. Any other Any other memories you want to touch on about because you want to talk about school years as well too? Um, one other thing that I remember um, when we first came to Pender, and I think this is was in my sort of bid to be part of the community, somehow I was informed that uh, there was scouts and um, 
cubs on scouts and cubs and beavers on on pender or they wanted to get it started again i think there was already cubs and scouts but there was no beavers for the little kids so one very strange day i went to an information meeting and ended up and i honestly do not know how this happened Somehow I became the leader of the Beaver Scouts. What? What do you mean you don't know how it happened? Because I think I'd put my hand up and said, well, yeah, I'd be interested in helping or something like that. <laughs> She's our leader. She wants to be the leader. It. And the next thing I knew, I was standing up taking an oath of some sort. <laughs> being, was there a Bible involved? Probably. Okay. All right. I was being inducted into this sort of militaristic organization that I really, as a hippie, didn't, they got didn't really think that much of but did, did you get your own uniform like uh, a sachet I think, I, or yeah, I, think I had a sash and i had i don't know i probably didn't i can't remember <laughs> okay but anyway however um we did we we met at the school gym and uh there's a bunch of little boys no girls and we had beaver scouts and the thing was you know it is a it was anyway kind of a militaristic you you have to follow <laughs> all these rules and and I do remember on Armistice Day or on, you know, November 11th, we had to have talk about war. And me being a, you know, peace and love person, I was kind of going on the thing, well, you know, there's other ways to figure out conflicts besides war. But, you know, these wars did happen. A lot of people died and so on. And I can remember Michael Elliott going, yeah, I want to be a soldier. I want to have a gun. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, I gotta, gotta, yeah, turn down that fire there. Yeah, uh, it was, um, it was pretty interesting. And my son Jordan was the most naughty of all the boys, and I actually had to. He likes to say I, I had to fire him from Beavers, and Whoa. I did because he was a brat, and I think it's because I was the leader. He wouldn't have done it, you know, if somebody else had been in control, but. I Anyway, that was a short-lived but interesting experience at the Pender School. I was just going to ask why the most naughty, but I guess when your mom's in charge, I don't know. Yeah, it just it's, it's easy to easy to be that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's another. There's there's so many little interesting tidbits about uh, Pender Island and little stories like that that uh, <laughs> just to get uh, lost as history goes on. But um, do you do you want to talk about Jordan now? Sure. Okay. All right. I guess just delving into the uh, the topic of uh, your son Jordan, who you mentioned before, and he unfortunately passed away a few years ago. And maybe if you want to describe that situation and the subsequent uh, involvement that you have with the uh, job that you're doing right now, I would say that the kids, as they grew on Pender and grew into te- teenage and middle teenagers, were doing pretty much the same things that kids do everywhere, or most kids, many kids, you know, they were sneaking off to smoke pot or to drink a beer, you know, at the swimming hole. That was one of their favorite haunts, girls and boys. And it was of concern to us parents. And certainly we were keeping an eye on it. We were picking them up from wherever we were cognizant of what was going on to a certain point. So what what happened for Jordan was... He, and I, you know, I I don't know why I can't get into the why of it. I mean, I certainly have some ideas, but it sort of didn't end for him. He went to high school. He was skateboarding. He was still doing a lot of skateboarding, smoking too much pot, drinking, you know, at parties and things. It seemed like over partying. That's kind of how I categorized it. And it was of concern. But by the time he was 19, he'd finished high school at GISS and was working on Salt Spring, doing, I don't know, various things. He um, came to his dad and I when he was about 19, and he said, I think I think I'm addicted to cocaine and to alcohol, and I need some help. We got him into um, a, a rehab, into a recovery place in New Westminster, where he was for about two months, and he came out feeling pretty confident that he had beaten this thing and that he was okay. And that really wasn't the case. He he continued, even though he was functional, he was, had a, always worked. Um, he actually started his own business in his early 20s, um, but he was continually still taking, taking different substances and smoking a lot of pot and drinking. When he was 23, and this was, again, this was of great concern, but he was kind of out of our control. He kept close to us. He kept uh, in contact and uh, made me crazy a lot of the time just, you know, with his 
different behaviors. And when he was 23, he had started his own business called Island Sweeps. He got, he had gone to Edmonton, got trained as a wood wood stove installer, and he had his certification on that and came back and started his business with his girlfriend, Katrina. They did pretty well, but Jordan was still into substances and and I don't actually even know quite which ones or was it all or I don't know. When he was 23, he had a back injury on the job. He uh, went to our local doctor, one of our doctors who is no longer here. And that doctor prescribed oxycodone for Jordan, which is like the Canadian brand of Oxycontin, an opioid. Jordan got addicted to it very quickly. And this doctor did not know really very much about opioids and about addiction. He continued to prescribe this to Jordan for about six or seven months. Jordan was solidly addicted to that drug. And again, you know, it's a long story, but the the short story is uh, we got Jordan into detox. He came out of detox and needed the support, which we couldn't find in Victoria at that time. This is in 2014. He relapsed after a few months and he um, was able to, just by going to walk-in clinics, getting got a sort of a compendium of different drugs that were opioid-based. And uh, one fateful day, he took, he took a fatal combination of those drugs um, and it stopped his heart. That was February 14th, 2014. So as any parent or anybody can imagine, it was by far and still is the worst thing that can ever, ever happen in a family is to lose somebody from, from many causes, but from a drug overdose seems to have its own special tragic nature. So after about a year, um, I ended up sort of coincidentally meeting two other women in Edmonton who had similarly lost their sons to drug overdose. The three of us decided to start a group called Mum Stop the Harm. And we, our intention was to advocate and to activate, be activists to the government to make better drug policies and to have more recovery and more treatment and more education. We really wanted the government to act. So skip ahead to now, really, because it, it, we've been active and working super hard ever since. There's over 800 members of Mum Stop the Harm in Canada now, across Canada. Probably about 50 or 60 of those 800 are very um, strong advocates and activists for drug policy. And we've um, sort of turned into Evolved, which wasn't in our plan to begin with, but to be a, a great support for families who have who have either lost somebody or who have someone still in active addiction. Yeah. So, and I also now work uh, and actually get paid for some of my work from the BC Center on Substance Use in Vancouver, and I'm called the Family Engagement Lead. So that is just it, engaging families in new ways of thinking, evidence-based research around um, drug addiction and drug treatment, seeing what families want and what they need to, to proceed with that. So that's become my life. That and speakeasy, of course, <laughs> and a few other things. I teach. I teach some amazing teenage girls uh, writing. Although I don't really teach them, they gather at my house once a week for writing, and they've almost finished after four years of being together and coming over to my house. What I would call it's it's almost a novel. It's somewhere between a novel and a novella uh, that Pender Island will see pretty soon, one of these days. Yeah, you you read a small portion of that at a recent speakeasy, and it was, yeah. it was amazing, actually. Yeah, it's they're amazing girls. Yeah, you know, when Jordan died, it was a it was a pretty big deal on the island. Actually, I had never had the pleasure of meeting your son, actually, but he was an island kid, and it yeah. really affected a lot of people. And it would, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a big deal to say the least. And subsequently, what's happened since that time with the transition within your life, with the work that you're doing now, I know that you've had a lot of fulfillment from that and that you have a lot of interesting and positive life experiences that have uh, come from that work that you've done. And I think it's pretty amazing, Leslie. I think it's it's really cool, you know, yeah. and uh, just when you came over tonight, you shared a story with my wife and I about just something new that's happened through the work that you've done that could have a uh, positive impact in people's lives. And 
Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for working on that and trying to bring awareness and trying to make some real long lasting changes. I could, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of really good people working on this and I'm proud to be one of them and I don't want to do it for the rest of my life, but right now things are, things are moving and yeah, we're having, we're all finding some success with governments who are, well, when you figure over 10,000 people have died in the last five years, probably 13,000 is by my count, which I've done sort of by Googling, um, have died in Canada from drug overdose in five years. I mean, it's, it's insane. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's almost unbelievable. And we continue to not attend to that as, as a culture and as a, as governments, uh, in a good way, in a fulsome way. You know, it's interesting. I'm, sometimes if not most of the time looking at this podcast as a bit of a historical document and that thinking of people in the future listening to this 10 20 years down the road perhaps that would be incredible if that happened and i hope that does happen but to give a current day assessment of the situation what is at the core of the problem in terms of people dying from overdoses is it the kind of drugs that they're taking yeah, it is. That's not the core of the problem. That is that is basically the, the symptom of the problem. It sounds weird, but, you know, fentanyl is the drug that's killing everybody. And fentanyl is a black market drug. Uh, well, it's actually a, a legal drug in hospitals and medical settings. It's a very efficient and good opioid painkiller. It's used every single day in every hospital across the world. It's cheap and it's an opioid and it is replacing heroin basically for people who are uh, dependent or addicted to opioids. It's also found its way into other drugs that are more recreational like ecstasy and cocaine and crystal meth even. So, so that's what's killing people. But at the root of the problem, depends how deep you want to go, but the root of the problem is prohibition on drugs and the stigma surrounding drug use. We, as a culture, well, prohibition on alcohol happened, right, in the, in the teen, 19-teens, in the 20s, early 20s, and because a lot of people decided that it was an evil substance and that it broke up families and it made people addicted and it made them violent and all these reasons, what happened, of course, was that uh, black market alcohol came to be and bathtub gin and all the, you know, stills out in the woods and all that. And uh, people, if they want alcohol, they're going to have alcohol no matter what the law says. The government after a few years, and this is just the overview because the provincial governments had different policies and so on, but realized that prohibition on alcohol did not work. It brought up gangs, it brought up killings, it brought up, you know, this toxic black market. It just didn't work. So they repealed that. And now today, you know, we, any of us can go into thousands of different liquor outlets and buy safe product. Prohibition on drugs is exactly the same dynamic. People want to take drugs. They will get, some get addicted, uh, just like some people get addicted to alcohol. And most don't. Most people who take drugs do not get addicted, but we see the ones that do. I mean, certainly the media makes a big deal out of you know, the downtown east side and all of that. If the government were able to see its way to providing safe legal supply of drugs to people who need them, we wouldn't have these deaths. The black market would disappear because it wouldn't have customers. Uh, and that's simplistic, I realize that. But the root of the problem is the war on drugs. So we always say we're fighting the war on the war on drugs. We want to see people who use drugs decriminalized. We want to see um, the government to take over the regulation and, and implementation of people getting safe drugs. And that way too, they can have options of recovery and all kinds of things. But the way it is right now, it's, it's the freaking wild west. You know, people are dying all over the place. The drug thugs are making zillions of dollars. It's completely out of control. Yeah. Well, hopefully things change sometime soon. You know, just while you were speaking there, I was thinking about my own choices about using mind-altering substances and why. And uh, a, a question I ask myself sometimes before I do something is, uh, I ask myself, is this a life-affirming choice? Ah. And 
<laughs> Usually the answer is pretty obvious. Yeah. It's like before having a beer or right, having right. having a toke. Uh, it's like no, it's actually not a life affirming choice. Sometimes it is, but usually it's not, and you just, it's a it's a form of escapism usually. And I think that is so many of us wind up reaching for things to alter our consciousness just to escape. And there's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain uh, out there in the world. And yeah, you know, like in terms of like thinking about what the core of the problem is, I think it runs pretty deep, right? But you know what you, what you're describing about having safe substances for people to use, I think is an incredibly important thing. It is. And, mm-hmm. and you know, all throughout time, people have used mind-altering substances till since early human beings. It's not new. Um, it's always been that way. And it will always be that way. People will reach for substances to relax or to mitigate pain or, you know, whatever, whatever the reasons are. Sometimes I'm sure life affirming doesn't actually come into the equation. It's more to be comfortable. And uh, so, yeah, we have to deal with reality in this. We, we have to put our stigma aside and our old school thinking and just get real about it. Okay. Well, to move into the second traditional question we always ask on this program, and I'll make the segue by saying thank you for helping many people along the way in recent years. And the second traditional question is, who's helped you along the way on Pender Island, Leslie? Well, I have some favorite people who I go to, you know, my go-to folks who I know care about me and, and value me. And I think that's how we you know, that's, we make friends, we value each other and we care about what happens to each other and so on. One of my first friends on Pender was Judith Walker. Judy's been really important in my life. She's stood by me through thick and thin and all kinds of things. So, so I definitely say she's been super important in my life. Not only the fact that she is who she is, she's a lovely person. She's one of the most talented painters I've ever encountered. She's an incredible artist. So I, I sort of, I'm one of those people who I'm not a good visual, I'm not a visual artist at all, but I tend to gravitate towards those who are, I think it's a shit, my shadow self or something. So Judith Walker has been super important in my life. Right now, one of my best friends is Bruce Alexander, who lives on this island. He's the author of the Rat Park Experiments. Um, which is a drug drug related uh, experiments that people can look up. He's written several several books, but he uh, has written one called "The Globalization of Addiction," and he uh, is very generous with his time and meets with me every few weeks for coffee, and I get to pick his brain. And so he's definitely one of my people who have really helped me here on Pender, and that's pretty recent. Um, I thought, God, there's so many. When you say that, I think of people like Nia Williams and Yvonne McKenzie and Marianne Perry, and a lot of these people are poets, And but they're also a sisterhood. There's a sisterhood here on Pender, and one of the people who's always been there for me and is a really good and trusted and amazing friend is Amy Heggie. Um, she's not only a great artist, another one of my artist friends and singer and all around amazing cook and trusted individual. Um, I just want to say that a shout out to her for, uh, we live just down the road from each other, which is really helpful and uh, have spent, yep, a lot of time talking about a lot of things. I'm probably missing names of people I should be, (laughs) I should be uh, mentioning because there's, there's so many great women uh, on this island. Yeah. So it's hard to pick out, you know, your friends are your friends cause you value them. So I value all of them. For sure. Well, almost everybody says, ah, there's just too many people to mention. Yeah. I don't want to forget somebody for sure. Yeah. But, uh, I just think it's, it's nice to see the connections that exist that people don't know about on the island. Like we talked about family, for instance, sometimes. Well, I was just going to say, I, I have to say my sister, Diane has been my biggest, She's my best friend, uh, really, and she's the one we talk every day and we we get to download, as sisters do, you know, all the bullshit and all the great stuff and, you know, the challenges and, yeah, so she's she's really the most important person. Yeah. Besides my dog, I have to say that because, you know, my dog is my other best friend. 
What's what's your dog's name? Rascal. Good old Rascal. Yeah, Rascal. Yeah, he's been uh, with me since Jordan died. He was Jordan's dog, and uh, as dog owners know, dogs are people. And if I didn't have him, I don't know what I'd do. He's been just by my side these last five years, just close as he can be. And boy, that's just so valuable to me. He's a pretty cool dog. He's a very cool dog. Yeah, definitely. He's kind of a handsome guy too, you know. <laughs> As the dogs go. As dogs go. <laughs> I, I like myself a handsome dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you mentioned your sister Diane just before that. Yeah. And of course, without her, you wouldn't be on the island. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's that's how I got here to Pender Island for she, sure. She was the, the first McBain to move to, uh, yeah. move to Pender. That's true. So in terms of what else is uh, occupying your time right now, I hear you got a heat pump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a heat pump. I have a heat pump. I was shocked at how ugly it is but holy cow i've only had it for a few days as we speak and it is so wonderful i encourage everyone to dig deep and get well they're not that expensive but they're not cheap either but get a heat pump oh my gosh saves you money in the long run the heat is beautiful i'm so excited about the heat pump i'm so excited about the heat pump i was i was actually just joking about talking about the heat pump i thought it'd be hilarious because we, you just put a post on facebook the other day about oh this thing's so ugly we had a big talk about it upstairs it's so ugly but i'm gonna get one of our fine crafts people here on pander to build a a, a box for it that works because yeah it looks like you kind of it looks like i have a little bar fridge in my living room or something it's yeah it's not really attractive it's but if it, it works it it's functional works. Yeah. yeah it's been two days though I know everyone says you'll get used to it, but I doubt it. Well, is there is there anything else that uh, you want to touch on? You want to talk about about uh, you want to send out to the people of Pender that uh, Pender. they may not know about you? That well, I can only say that to have uh, to be in a community that is surrounded by water, uh, that dynamic is really interesting because it brings a community together. It forces us together in a, in a sense. Um, it may be the good news and the bad news all, all at once because people love to complain about the fairies. But I feel so comfortable in this on this island, in this community. Um, and that's to the credit. I mean, I I blame that on everybody here. We've got everybody here is the is, the mix is amazing. We're not big on ethnic diversity, unfortunately. And, and you know, the, the culture, we're, we're so gay friendly and I love that and we have young and old and we have creative and people who are working from Pender elsewhere I mean we just have such a, a rich uh, a rich combination of folks so I'm just so grateful to be here and so grateful to live in the trees I I've always I mean I like I said I always want to live in the forest and living in the forest is what keeps me going really yeah well, when you say that surrounded by water creates an interesting mm. dynamic, let's mm. talk about that for a little sure. bit because I think it's really interesting that mm. uh, it does it does create a certain dynamic. But what what does it create? So, what like, what create? what specifically yeah. would you say that it creates? Well, you know, geographically, we like I say, we're all on the piece on this piece of rock, and we have to take that into consideration. It's not easy just to drive away. <laughs> You have to be here. And, you know, we all have our places that we love to go. I think out in, out in the woods or in the, at the beach or, you know, on top of Mount Norman or whatever. But at the end of the day, we are in this together. We all have a feeling, well, most of us, I can't speak for everyone, have a feeling of protectiveness uh, around our, our community. We care about each other. And I mean, certainly Facebook, people can say what they want about Facebook, but Facebook and like the market and the online forum, we get to communicate with each other. And that's a way to, that's a way, that's sort of a sociological structure where we can see where everybody's at. Um, people can express their opinions. People can have little fights on Facebook and they do say rude things or say nice things. But at the end of the day, we're all still at the True Value, right? Or we're all at the liquor store, we're all at Joe's place or at Browning or, you know, any of the places. And we have to get along. Just the other day, I was at Comedy Night at Browning, which was hilarious. And I just recommend everybody go to every Comedy Night. It was so fun. A guy came up to me at the end of the night and he he apologized for something that had happened I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, I don't know, an incident. 
And I, I was shocked. And I, and so he'd been carrying this around and maybe he'd had a few drinks or whatever, but you know, he, he just was like, Oh, I just really want to apologize. And I'm not mad or I hope you're not mad. And, and I thought, you know, in the city, that would never happen. You, you just wouldn't see that person again. So it makes us sort of accountable. I have somebody I want to apologize to right now, and I'm going to phone that person or, you know, somehow get in touch and say, you know, I said this about that, but you know what? I, that was not right. You know, so because it matters that we, that we get along and that we, that we're kind and respectful and we try to, we try and be the best we can for each other. That's interesting. It didn't sound like the person was apologizing because it was an awkward bumping into each other. It sounded as if just by circumstance of being in the same room together, there was an opportunity to do that. Yeah. yeah. I walked by him and then he, he had to, he wanted to say that. So I loved it. You know, I've had, I've had that happen. Another time I remember a person I lent some money to and the person didn't pay me back for a really long time. And I kind of gave up. I said something to, to him a few times and then I just gave it up. And I swear it was about, Five years later, he came up to me in the pharmacy and handed me the money. And I was just, I was so shocked and delighted, of course. I mean, the money didn't matter, but just the fact that he did that, you know. So again, it's this thing that in a bigger, wider community, it might not happen. You might never see that person again or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I heard somebody mention recently that we are surrounded by turbulent conditions because the ocean is all around us. And that uh, it's funny when you go to an ocean lookout point or if you're lucky enough to live right on the ocean on a bluff or something, it's incredibly windy a lot of the time. And then it gives you some perspective as to what it's like out on the water. But here we are on a little isolated island surrounded by rather turbulent weather conditions. And mm -hmm. I can't help but think that plays a part in it. But I do feel a sense of peacefulness and calm that exists on this island. It's it's not an aggressive place by any means. No. No, it's uh, it's definitely far more friendly. Maybe passive aggressive sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but yeah. certainly a, yeah. a deep, deep uh, level of friendliness exists yeah. here, right? Yeah. I mean, there's like I say, there's all different kinds of people here. Like there would be anywhere. But yeah, I think, yeah, as I say, that being surrounded by water and not being able to just drive off into the somewhere else, even another community, you have to wait for the ferry and do all that stuff and prepare and so on. Yeah, I think it's it's a, it's a really kind of a valuable thing. Yeah. And We're all here because we want to be, basically, right? Most of us are here because we want to be. Yeah. That's you, the other thing. If you don't want to be, it actually seems pretty easy to leave. Yes. Yeah. People do it all the time. They do. <laughs> And, and Sometimes might, we kick them off too. I know. There's a dynamic there that, you know, if you're bad, if you're a bad person and you hurt other people in any way, it's not going to be pleasant. So there's that side of it. I've heard rumors that the the cops somehow, quote unquote, kick people off the island, but I don't quite know how that works. But I think that's true. And I don't know how it works either. I've never actually seen it happen, but uh, I've heard, certainly heard rumors. And I, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of strange. You'd think they would, you know, turf them off to some jail somewhere, but no, they just leave. <laughs> you mentioned there. earlier about it being not very ethnically diverse, mm -hmm. but you said that it, uh, from your perspective, it's a pretty uh, gay-friendly island. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it seems like it to me. Maybe I'm not gay, but so I maybe I don't know everything. I certainly don't. But I think our friends that are here that are gay feel safe here and feel that you know that the their lifestyle works here and feel comfortable um we're having we're preparing for our first gay pride oh um, yeah right <laughs> gay pride parade and day on pander coming up and i think we're our first meeting is in a couple of weeks but yeah which i think and sarah ray was the one who spearheaded that kathy mcintyre and amy Heggy and sarah ray and and people like that too okay yeah all right, well, we're re reaching the uh, the end of our time coming okay. up here, so I'm going to uh, throw it back to you. For We can go on for as long as the last bit yeah. as you want, but is, uh, is there anything in particular that you want to end off with? I'll end off just by saying, and this is just my personal thing, but my life plan, I'm 70, 71 years old right now, and the way I look at my future and, like, say, the next 20 years, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, 
my goal, <laughs> sort of my financial goal and my goal is to stay on Pender till I die and to die on Pender. That's how much I love it here. Um, I hope that happens. I'll do everything I can to make it be that way. Yeah, I never want to leave here. All right. Well, I definitely want to thank Leslie very much for doing that interview. And to honor that interview, I decided that I would come down to the Heart Trail. So the Heart Trail is located on the North Island, and you can access it from Prior Centennial Campground or on Ketch Road. And it's only a kilometer long trail that stretches in between those two locations. And I just came to a little bump out off of the trail here that is up on top of a hill and there's the fading light in front of me right now. I can see the sky with purples and pinks and reds through the trees here. It looks like a beautiful sunset. I can just see little pieces of it. And the reason I decided I'd come to the Heart Trail is because I think Leslie has a lot of heart. And I just wanted to give honor to that. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Ptarmigan Arts Society for helping to sponsor this podcast. And until next time.